This morning is our, I don't remember exactly what sermon it is in in going through the Sermon on the Mount, but we've reached sort of the center of the sermon. Um, Matthew seems to have preserved the Lord's Prayer for the very, very middle of the sermon. And when I say Matthew, obviously these words, uh, as we believe in the church, was spoken by Jesus Christ. but it seems like these, these sermons and these texts sometimes go through what they call a redaction process, a way of sort of, of, of bringing Jesus' sayings and teachings together in a way that, that preserves them for the church. And there's, you know, part of this is it's an oral tradition, so it's easier to memorize. Part of it is to, to bring meaning. Um, one theory, I don't know which one of these things that is. Um, part of it might be to... To, um, to heighten some concerns that, that aren't heightened. Part of it might be to, to use this sort of redactional device to teach us. But So when I say Matthew, don't think I mean that Jesus didn't say these things. But more along the lines that Matthew is one who's compiled these stories for us, is one who is teaching, has used these to sort of, guided by the Holy Spirit when we speak of inspiration, has laid them out for us. And so as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been blessed by Jesus in sort of this way in which it says that if you are poor now, someday um, uh, the kingdom of heaven is yours, that if you are hungry now um, uh, for righteousness, you will be filled. If you mourn now, you will be comforted. And, and so it starts with this, this um, and a word that's going to come up several times today, eschatological frame, um, which is fun to say, I think, harder to spell, um, uh, eschatological, uh, which is this notion of, of Christ's fulfillment in time. That like there's the eschatological simply means last things or last times. Now, many Christians only think of the book of Revelation that way, but most of the New Testament is written in a frame in which this kingdom, which we sang about today, which Jesus announces in all of the three first gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this kingdom is breaking into the world, that, that this kingdom is the one that we await. And so in that way, that is the last thing that's coming. So if I say eschatological, that's what I mean. Uh, I'll try to avoid it as best as I can. Um, but we were blessed, and then we were named as this community that is salt and light for the world. That Jesus has called this church to be this essential thing. We've been called in this way to sort of be that which gives the world its preservation and flavor, but also to be that which enlightens it, that, that brings out um, um, goodness from the darkness, um, that God has entrusted that to the church. Second is that the the third thing was that Jesus says he fulfills the law and the prophets. And he says that our righteousness will succeed that of the Pharisees, which is at the time what many people would have thought as the most righteous level. He says your righteousness will exceed that. And the way he tells us that is through how we think through anger and um, lust and divorce and oaths and revenge and loving our enemies. He sort of takes these old laws that he has fulfilled and brings us to seeing um, the kernel of truth that was in them or the deeper meaning that was in them and his fulfillment of them. And then last Sunday, we looked at this, this higher righteousness, not in the moral sense, which was those first six categories, but the next three, which were almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, these devotional practices. How, how will the church's higher righteousness be, be known through their almsgiving, their prayer, and their fasting? One of the things I talked about is, is that the word hypocrite, which David read again for us today, is actor. It's not just somebody who is um, 
misleading you, but it's an actor in the ancient context. And so when you give and when you pray and when you fast, you don't do so as if you're acting it. You're making a bitter thing. It's not even whether it's true or not in the, in the traditional sense of what a hypocrite is. It's that you're not drawing attention to yourself, but it's for your father who is in secret, which is repeated after each of those teachings. But one of the reasons why we look at this, the Lord's Prayer as making the center of the Sermon on the Mount is that it's weirdly shoved in there. Is, is there's, um, you know, when you do this, don't do it like them. When you do this, don't do it like them. When you do this, don't do it like them. And then right in between the second and third, when you do this, don't do it like these people, is this prayer. And this prayer, I meant to, to write it down, but it's like 111 Greek words, I think, from the beginning, and 116 wor- Greek words from the end. Like, it's very central to the whole motif of, of the Lord's Prayer. And it centers the sermon for us today, and so it's an important thing for us to sort of sit with it. Now, many of you will remember I gave 12 sermons, I think, just on the Lord's Prayer. So my goal is to condense them all for you today. No. Um, Part of what I was talking to David about this before the service, he said, how's your Lord's Prayer sermon? I said, "Uh, not good. So sorry, (laughs) tipping you off. Sorry. Um, uh, But one of the challenges, I said, is I want to look at it as its whole. Like when I was able to give 12, I could say, what does our Father mean? What does in heaven mean? What does thy will mean? What does thy name mean? What does... Uh, give us this day our daily bread mean in its depths, but what does it mean in its fullness? And it's a lot harder to do that. It's much easier to to say, you know, well, I've got, you know, 30 minutes. I'll do, uh, my math is horrible. X number of minutes on each one divided by 30, uh, you can do that. It's much easier to, to do that than it is to sort of say, what is the point of this prayer? Why is it preserved in this way? Sorry, I, I forgot about this slide, which is worthless. So, I can send it out in the email. It's how the Lord's Prayer, or it's actually uh, interesting in that, that that notion of that this is the center of the prayer is actually starts with crowds, ends with crowds, introduction, conclusion, include uh, kingdom of heaven twice each, uh, third person, second person, um, law and prophets, law and prophets, and the Lord's Prayer is right here. So it makes sort of a, a full circle, um, the Lord's Prayer. And so, that is incredibly, just believe me that that's there. Um, uh, so sorry, I meant to show that. But, um, but this is uh, to look at the prayer as its whole. And so one of the things that, that both David read Luke's version, which is much shorter of the Lord's Prayer, comes from this phrase, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, it's not just something nice the church has been given, but it was given in response to those gathered around Jesus asking him, Lord, teach us to pray. Matthew's introduction is this then how you should pray. This is then how you should pray. This is how you are to address God. This is how you are to come to this point. And it gives this clear sort of um, notion that this is special for us. This is a grace to us that God in Jesus Christ has given us the words to pray and to address God. One of the reasons why I think it's important to put it at the center of the Sermon on the Mount is because it frees us from the ethical flatness you can take away from the Sermon on the Mount. You can think that this is just instruction for me to toughen up, to become the type of person that God has desired I come all on my own. And what Jesus has enabled here is for us to pray for that, to pray 
to God, to pray to know our Father, to pray to be in this spot. That Jesus has taught us to pray is our way of becoming the type of people that God would have us be, to be able to speak in this way. And so as we heard from David, there's, there's two warnings that sort of come, is don't pray on street corners, um, and don't hop up, uh, don't use lots of phrases to impress God. So the first is, you know, don't pray to flatter yourself, and then don't pray in a way to flatter God. Luther has this great quote that says, prayer should be short, frequent, and intense. Um, and you certainly can get that from the Lord's Prayer. It is short, it is frequent, and it has an intensity to it. And so Jesus has given us and instructed us in this prayer so that we can um, become like him. One of the, the as I, we think about the Lord's Prayer as a whole thing, is that the goal of Matthew's gospel is rarely that we would pray to Jesus. There are New Testament passages that talk like that. But as we see in the Sermon on the Mount and other portions, it's for us to move into the Jesus space of this, to become adopted children of God, to sort of put on that character, to become those whose, whose life are hidden in Christ, and so that we pray as Christ prayed, that we in some sense move into God's holiness, that in some sense we become, um, through this prayer and through other things, like Jesus. And so when we address our Father, we address our Father through the posture of the Son. And so this is for us to sort of bring into ourselves. And so the prayer begins with our Father who art in heaven, which is um, a, a nice way because it, you would think that if you heard the earlier teachings, there's, you don't pray in public almost. But our Father suggests that there are other people there. Not my Father who is in heaven, not only you, Father, who is in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven, that we become the church through that first address. We become the people capable of praying to the Father in heaven together. Um, it's a, a, one of the early church thinkers on this said that this is, creates the church in some way, that we all gather together and pray our Father creates us as the church in a new way. And I... I when we went through it line by line, which I'm going to try not to do today, uh, I do want to say that there's, there's an instance to push back on, on fatherhood language for God. Um, first off, uh, Matthew, towards the end of the gospel, says, call no one else father. It's almost as if this is a term uniquely reserved for God's relationship to us. And so if you think, well, the fatherhood language is too tied to my father, um, uh, Matthew almost is saying towards the end, yeah, that, that was a misattribution of Father. Father is God the Father and God the Father only. There's a way in which that is true. The second is, is, is that this is a revealed name for God in a different sense. Most of the language we have for God is all metaphorical. Um, and so there are, God is like a mother hen. God is like um, womb-like in his love, compassionate. These are feminine images for God, but they're almost all used in a metaphorical way which is a grace for us that we are given the freedom to use metaphors for God. Yet the fatherhood language for God is really um, not metaphorical, especially on the lips of Jesus Christ. It becomes more binding in that way. It is the revealed name for God. And so one of the things that, that I always say about this is that um, 
there's a f quote that we use that I didn't put up on the screen today, which is that you can notify, you can no notice antiquated forms of the church by how uncomfortable they are with the triune formula that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. Um, and I, I don't mean to wash away that that can raise serious questions for us, but through joining the church, through joining this language, through learning to be in this way, it becomes that which is native to us, even if it's a struggle. Um, and so that is who we are as his people who pray to the Father. And Matthew's gospel is this way of bringing us into that space of knowing this. Each one of the um, almsgiving, the prayer, and the fasting is seen by your Father who is in secret. But one of the things I wanted to, to sort of bring out today for us is that the Lord's prayer in this eschatological last times way comes out of pressures. It comes out of intense context in which this kingdom is coming to earth. There's two ways um, that we can say that. One, I'll put this up, is the already and not yet of the kingdom in which we talked, is there is an already in which Jesus is announcing the kingdom amongst us, performing these acts of healing, feeding people. There is an already in which this kingdom is taking root in the world. Bonhoeffer has this phrase that the kingdom sinks its seed down into the ground and it becomes something that is growing in this space by the will and the work of God. But there's a not yet as well. We still live in a world of hunger. We still live in a world of injustice. We still live in a world in which uh, our sin uh, and other people's sin can go unchecked. We still live in a world of revenge and retribution. And so there's this already not yet of it. The a theologian Rowan Williams um, talks about when they were, he was recently interviewed and he asked what he would hope for theologians today that are learning. And he said, I'd hope that they gain some of the pressure in their lives that produced the New Testament. That the New Testament comes out of this notion in which this kingdom is coming that is birthed in Jesus and it is for us to be the anticipation of it, to be witnesses to it, to have that be what is near to us. And it creates this way in which the world we are in is in some sense either a lie or a, a mirage or a facade in that we've begun to see the real world as it's going to come in its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so there's this way in which we do theology from the present often. Um, I think that sometimes the New Testament, or often the New Testament, asks us to do prayer from, or theology from the end. To think about what is the end going to be like and how does that enforce how we live in the moment? How does that bring us to where we live in the moment? If you think of the commands that Jesus has gave us about um, lust and, and divorce and... Um, Anger. It's almost as if to say the end of that is murder. And so we live in the present trying to put away those things. C.S. Lewis has this great uh, essay on hope in mere Christianity where he says that we often think the people who thought the most about the next world, the heavenly world, did the least in the moment. Uh, so, so heavenly minded of that they're of no good. And I think there's a chance that that's true, but Lewis's point is that's kind of a, a, a bastardization of the, the truth. And what he says is that, that the people who um, brought an end to slavery in England, um, they were the ones who thought so much of heaven that there is no slavery in heaven. And so they thought, sought to abolish it on earth. Or a contemporary example could be uh, people I know who think that lack of clean water, that people die from lack of clean water is a grievous sin, because in heaven... 
there will be no lack of clean water. So in the moment, what we can do is seek to bring clean water to other people. That, that, that sort of ethics can come from the end as much as they come through thinking through the present. And it perhaps might be ethic, wor worth it more to consider our ethics as they come from the end, where swords are beating into plowshares and spears are, are turned into pruning hooks. That as we begin to look, what is God calling us to be? It's not this... Um, compromised sort of way of being with the world, but this wholeness in which God is ushering in. And so we talk, we can talk about exceptions, but I only get so much time and, and people don't listen to me anyway. So um, why, why talk about exceptions when we can talk about the fullness of what's required for us and we can pray through the exceptions in our own time? And so that's, there's this way in which this comes out of these pressures that creates it. And what happens over the um, delayed Parousia, the delayed um, eschaton, the delayed revelation of Jesus Christ, um, not coming in the next hundred years or with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we get lax. We begin to say, well, it's not coming tomorrow, which uh, I hear a lot, and it's like, yeah, but we're all supposed to live like it is coming tomorrow. Like, the, the question was never when it's coming. Um, it's to live as if it's coming tomorrow, and one of the things that annoys me, we've talked about this before on trying to one-up Jesus. If Jesus says, I don't even know when the time is, if you meet somebody who says, you know, I figured it out, they're probably lying. Because Jesus is the one who is fully human and fully divine, doesn't know. Um, the guy on the internet, probably wrong. Um, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that we are to live as if that is coming tomorrow, because I think that creates the pressures for us to become these type of people. You can build up and store and plan for the future if you don't think Christ is returning. And plan in ways that um, view the world in scarcity, view the world in its flawedness, view the world in that I have to program for the bad things that might happen, rather than that if Christ is coming tomorrow, how do I live freely in the moment? And that's going to be what takes up much of the Sermon on the Mount in the next section after we uh, finish the Lord's Prayer about worry and stress and um, treasures in heaven and other things. That God is freeing us from this notion of that all that exists in existence is the plane of what we see and that there is something beyond that. And that is what I think the Lord's Prayer captures for us in its eschatological nature, in its nature to sort of place us in that frame. The second one of these um, is way of conceiving of how the Lord's Prayer functions for us is, is um, this comes from uh, Greg Boyd. Uh, he's, he's, he talks about if you woke up on June 5th or June 6th, 19, David, help me out, 40, Utah Beach, 39, 41, 44, 40, 45, 44, okay. So that if, if you haven't put it together, that's D-Day. Um, if you woke up in your home at uh, Point Du Hawk, which is, is, is a cliff overlooking it, and you walk out that day, and you bring your lawn chair down to the beach, and you sit out, and you enjoy, uh, in the movies, it's never sunny that day. It might, I'm guessing it wasn't. But you go out, and you enjoy your morning coffee. Um, you break open your Bible or a novel, and you sit on the beach, and you, you remain oblivious to what is going on around you. And one of the ways that Boyd brings that out is that the church, with the pressures of the New Testament today, is trying to live as if there isn't this cosmic battle, this cosmic warfare, this cosmic um, uh, 
uh, way of changing and fighting over the world around us. And instead, we, we bring our devotional down to the beach. We sit out there with a T. We Instagram it, put hashtag blessed, um, and uh, enjoy the glories of the day. And that's not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, don't get me wrong on that. But what we often do is stick our heads in the sand to what is going on here. And so the Lord's Prayer incidentally begins with our Father who is in heaven and ends with the evil one. The ending that we pray, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, um, is an addition that comes later. And I think it's a good addition. It helps bring the prayer to a better ending than, and deliver us from the evil one. Um, I, I think in the church in its wisdom added its two verses, uh, Chronicles and something else, as, as sort of a doxology to the prayer. But, but this prayer stands in this world in which there is a father in heaven and an evil one we are asked to mean to live or to at the moment. We often pray evil, by the way. And again, the Greek is open to evil one. But if, if you didn't want to say deliver us from the evil one, it would almost be more correct to say deliver us from the evil uh, that would be the other translation. So um, evil one is possible, um, but if you, want, if you want to just say evil, uh, the evil. Um, side note, life seems to be too short for anybody to learn a new way to pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, uh, the way we learned it, uh, whether it's from the King James or the NIV or just from our household growing up, we never change. Um, uh, and so uh, that Be Thou My Vision, I could use this as a sermon analogy as if I meant to do it. We have a new version of Be Thou My Vision we've, we've sort of adapted to, and I pasted the old one in. And so it created this divide between people who know the lyric, the chorus to the new one, and people who know the old one. Uh, we have that happen with the Lord's Prayer, and many churches do. Is it trespasses, sins, or debts? Um, now, I will say, you can go listen. That was a weird side note. Um, it is it just as funny to me that, that as we say, you know, the evil one, the evil, that, that it doesn't seem like anybody's interested in learning a new version of the Lord's Prayer. Sins, I, I believe, comes from Luke. Debts is the literal translation of Matthew. And trespasses comes from the King James. Um, and so those are the sort of three ways in which people pray that portion, um, all meaning the same thing. I don't think you get away from that. Um, so, back to the war. It's, I just ignored D-Day to talk about that. Um, uh, that the, the Lord's Prayer comes out of this eschatological frame in which we are gr coming to the awareness that there is a kingdom that is breaking into this place, and it is for the church to become a witness to it. And instead, what we do is we just sort of have our same devotional life. And so, one of the themes that we've been trying to hit on the Sermon on the Mount, and one that I think I missed when we went through 12 weeks on the Lord's Prayer, is this is meant to bring us to a heightened moment. There's a, there's a joke I have at Advent is, uh, what are your favorite seasonal hymns and why are Advent hymns the best? Um, you don't get to pick anything else. And Advent brings us to that spot too in which we stand in sort of this apocalyptic unveiling in that we wait the return of Christ that we sort of move into the space, so much so that, um, and we've talked about this before, is that we have a, a bifocal vision for the world, that, that the way in which we see the world naturally um, is, is if we don't have our glasses on, and through the Spirit, and through inhabiting the Lord's Prayer, and, and through um, learning to see through what Jesus is revealing for us, and what the Old Testament teaches for us as well, we begin to, to adapt and to put on glasses that show us what really is. 
And the thing that I always like to say about that is it's, it's then we see what really is. It's almost, you could reverse it, is more true. That we see with our, stained, um, our sin-stained colored glasses, and through prayer we actually see what God has called us to. You see, if you do it one way, the true story looks like um, a filter on the world. But if you do it the other way, the true story is what's there, but we are blinded to it. And so the Lord's Prayer has this way of calling ourselves into that cosmic frame. It's why it begins with that, our Father who is in heaven. And it's this prayer that stands at this beginning of this new world, of this ways in which God is going to enact for us. So there are three uh, thou petitions, we'll call them, because we're good King James people here, and there are three we petitions. I just want to frame each of them in that eschatological way briefly, and then I'll have one, one more point to close. The first is, is our Father who is in heaven, um, and that sort of begins the address, and we talked about that pretty well already. Um, uphold the holiness of your name is my preferred, um, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, um, hallowed be thy name, uh, uphold the holiness of your name, because there's uh, one question, there's two questions there. One, for many of us, what does hallowed mean? Um, which is an important question to answer. And then two, uh, who is hallowing the name? Is it us or is it God? And then what is the name? So there, there are three things, I guess, to answer. First is it's asking that God's name would be held holy in the world. And what we do when we look at the world, and the Old Testament does this in several instances, and, and the psalm that Kim read this today is the correction to it, is that the world defames the Lord's name in its sin and destruction. That we defame the creator, we defame what God has called us to. And so to uphold the holiness of the name is to uphold um, the creation as it was meant to be. We live in a world that defames all of that. And there's this way, um, we know, we're kind of familiar with this in, in, in honor societies. Um, you see it is that name, your name, and who you are are closely tied together. Um, and so if somebody says, you know, I want to um, preserve the goodwill of my name by not getting into that, that is sort of what we're also asking for here, is that God's name is defamed among the nations, it says is at point. And so God is going to uphold the holiness of God's name. There's, there's a teaching, and I, and I have no idea where this came from, but I, I know where I read it, but that if you were Jew and you wanted to sin, you would go to some place where nobody knew you were Jew because that would defame the name of God. Um, and so there's this way in which ancient Israel is always trying to uphold the holiness of the name. It's why they don't say uh, uh, the name of God either. And so there, there's a way in which we uphold the, the holiness of the name. And the, in this way, it's connected to that sort of end times look is that the goal of creation is to reverberate with the name that God has given. In asking that God would uphold the holiness of God's name, we're asking that God's name would be fulfilled in the world in a way that there is no defamation of who God is. And I think it's more correct to say that God is the one who goes about that than we do. Uh, same with um, will and kingdom. Um, we, we join as witnesses to the work God has done, but we are so, um, we should really question our motives when we think 
we have solutions to these things. I know a way that the kingdom will come to earth. Um, you should probably pray about that for a very long time um, because we have short-sighted ways of doing this. Um, uh, you see it in, in compassionate ways today is that, you know, uh, society has an unjust wealth distribution, um, which I think is fair to say. Um, but in a bathroom in Carbondale, I saw written on the wall, eat the rich. Um, and so, okay, well, we could, we could work to, to do something with wealth distribution to some degree, but even when you sit with people with that for some time, resentment shows up very fast. Um, they built a, guillot a guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house. Um, you know, they just really want to help people. But when it's driven out of resentment, making society more equitable also turns to, to gas chambers and to gulags, as Flannery O'Connor said last week. And I think that's an important thing for us to remember. It is God who brings the kingdom. It is God who upholds the holiness of his name. Because when we try to do it ourselves, we don't examine our motives well enough. Um, and it often turns out poorly. Your kingdom come. This, the three Gospels that begin the New Testament are phrased with Jesus announcing the kingdom coming into the world. And this is um, one of the things we'll talk about at the State of Defiance meeting is, is our mission statement in the Constitution, or whatever you want to call it, is Defiance Church is to be a witness. Again, we don't bring it about. To the reign of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, reconciling all things to himself. That the reign of God there functions as the kingdom. We are a witness to God's kingdom, and we, we um, try to upbuild it in our lives and in our communities, but we don't control it. We don't make it. It is not ours to sort of do. And so the kingdom points to this eschatological time in which God will bring um, fullness to earth. And then the last one is thy will be done. This one is, uh, is perhaps the highest prayer because we have a lot of wanting our will to be done. Um, most of my fights with my family, kids, spouse, parents are about that my will be done, not anybody else's will be done. Um, and to lay down your will to God is, is perhaps one of the greater steps there is. At the end of, of the gospel, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that this cup of death would be taken from him, but he says, not thy will, but your will be done. Um, we are people called to carry crosses as well. And to think that we do so voluntarily, uh, again, we misunderstand ourselves. And so we pray that God's will will be done in that place. That God's will would come and reign in this world. And it's connected by that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, which is what this poster is based off of. We've talked about how I'm worried that the people who see it go, Colorado is like heaven. When in fact, the point of the poster is Colorado exists in dysfunction, and we pray for the kingdom to come as it is in heaven. Um, and so in our town, in that song, your love is strong, invade this town, invade this broken life. We both pray that the kingdom and the will and then the upholding of the holiness in the name would come into these broken places. So the point of the poster, obviously lost, I made a mistake, is that, is that Colorado is the broken place that we are praying for the kingdom to come into as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Eschatologically, it's praying for tomorrow's bread, which might actually be the most correct Greek rendering, 
And tomorrow's bread is the bread of the heavenly banquet of God. It's the, it's the bread of that time in which all things are consummated. It's that bread of that day in which we sit and feast together in the uh, vision of the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation. It's, it's praying for that bread of tomorrow that we have in the present to sustain us. Forgive us our debts as we forget of our debtors, trespasses, sins. We talked about that. Um, uh, as we forgive those who sin against us, is standing before that day in which we stand before God. That we forgive others as God forgives us. And one of the ways I talked about this last time is that we echo. We echo what we take into our lives. We echo what we do. We echo so much. And what God asks us to echo from, from this cosmic frame is forgiveness. It's to resonate with forgiveness that God will proclaim. And to lead us not in temptation and to deliver us from evil, which are two, is really one position, petition. Is, and temptation is a hard one. Many people ask me, God doesn't tempt us. What does that mean? It seems in the, in the eschatological sense and also in Matthew's plain sense to, be say, to save us from the time of trial. To save us from the time where our faith will be tested that God would relent for us because we might fail. And to be asked to be delivered from the evil one is to say that in this conflict, we ask to be delivered from the one who aims to distort and destroy creation. And so in closing, two thoughts. One is, uh, this is from Frederick Bruner. Being a disciple has always required Christians to be cultural atheists, publicly disavowing the myriad gods of popular lives. Praying the Lord's Prayer can make us culturally atheists. We don't live and die by everything else in the world. Obviously, this week I'm talking about sports, but in a different week I might be talking about politics. Um, two people got the joke there. Um, the, the idea is that we can function in a way that we know this one who is the Father that we don't bind our anxieties and our days and our pressures in a way that makes us worry and worry and worry and toil and toil and toil and try to live in a world that comes out right. We know where the kingdom is. We know who brings the kingdom. And we ask through the God's goodness that would come to earth. We don't make it ourselves. And so the, the quote on the back of the bulletin, which is one I use often that I don't have up on a slide, um, is to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To pray the Lord's Prayer is the beginning of an uprising in ourselves, in our church, and in the world against the disorder that resonates against it. If we learn to pray the Lord's Prayer within the, the level, um, the cross pressures of a battle that's raging on or, or whatever analogy you like to use from that, we become those who know that in this prayer begins the seeds of our pushback on the disorder of the world. May that uprising grow amongst us and may it grow in our church. Let us pray. God, you have taught your people to pray. You have said when you pray, pray like this.
God, so we ask that we would learn to rest knowing that you are our Father who resides in heaven, in the realm where things are as they should be. And in this realm where they aren't, we pray that your name would resound, that your will would be revealed, that your kingdom would grow here as it is there. And so, too, we pray you feed us in this task as we await that day. You give us the bread from tomorrow. We pray that we would be agents of forgiveness, freeing the world from its uh, retaliation and destruction, of letting go of debts, letting go of sins, as you do so for us. And we pray not to be led into that time of trial or testing. That you would keep us safe and near to you. And yet if we find ourselves there, that you would deliver us from the evil one. 